Good to see you guys this morning. Would you take the Bible, your Bibles and open them with me to Colossians chapter 1? Back in March of 1966, who was with us back then? Raise your hand, just so I know your ages. Uh, <laughs> I was... The, I was five-year-old. Back in March of 1966, there was a profile in the London Evening Evening Standard titled, How Does a Beetle Live? Now, for you young folk, it's not talking about the bug. It's talking about a group, a band. How does a beetle live? John Lennon lives like this. That's what the profile was about. In that profile, 25-year-old Lennon said this, and I quote. This is not a quote straight all the way through because it's long, but it's, it, it's not put out of context. This is, the, this is a quote. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I am right, and I will be proved right. We're, speaking of the Beatles, more popular than Jesus now. How many of you are learning this for the first time? Raise your hand that he he said something like this. I laugh at it. I'm thinking, how pitiful, how pathetic is it for anyone to think they are anywhere close to Jesus in any way. Jesus by far is the greatest man to have ever walked on the face of the earth. And he will always be considered so. The reason why is Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was the God-man. That's the title for the message this morning. The God-man Christ Jesus. Would you take your Bibles and make sure they're open by now to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And some of y'all remember back in the days, if you were with us back in the 60s, of all these throngs, usually of of young ladies screaming and fainting over what? The Beatles. Paul, mainly. I guess it was more than mainly over Paul. We we got an expert witness here. (laughs) Oh, Paul McCartney, but, you know, they wanted to hold his hand. They wanted to hold his hand. <coughs> Some of this is over your head for the young ones. But. but they were so crazy, and they actually thought they were more popular than Jesus. Uh, here we go. But here is the Apostle Paul writing to the, uh, uh, the uh, Colossian Christians. He's just wrote about him as the Redeemer. And then now he goes in to explain who this Redeemer is. He says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. 
And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. And Your Word is true. Your Word is powerful. I pray that Your Word would pierce our hearts and our minds today, would grab our attention. And Lord, may Your Word do a work in our lives. May we come, those of us who know You, come to know You in a greater way today because we've gathered around Your Word. And I pray if there's somebody here today that only knows about You, that by the grace and work of Your Word and through the work of Your Holy Spirit, You would open their eyes and they would come to know You as their Lord and their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. <clears throat> of the billions and billions of people who have lived on the face of the earth, few are remembered worldwide throughout history. Very few are remembered worldwide throughout history. Yet Jesus stands out far and above even the most famous. Jesus never physically wrote a song, yet He is the theme of a million songs. Jesus never physically, and I'm stress, stressing physically again, Jesus never physically wrote a book. Yet the book about Him is the number, world's number one bestseller year in and year out. Nothing is close. Jesus only had a three-year teaching ministry on earth. Yet His life and His teachings are taught far, far more than any other in the world. You know, to explain the fullness of Jesus is impossible. To ignore the teachings of Jesus is disastrous. That's why this country is going to hell in a handbasket. It's completely, even more so, ignoring the teachings of Jesus. To deny the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is fatal. Eternally fatal. Why? Because He's not just a man. He's not even just the greatest man. He is the God-man. Now at the time of Paul's writing to the Colossian church, some were promoting a multifaceted heresy from an early Gnostic ideology. An ideology is a way to think, a way to look at life. And uh, there was, Gnosticism was in the process of being developed. It wasn't full-blown, but it was certainly in the process of it. We have a lot of ideologies going on today in our culture that are being developed. And we'll get in that in just a little bit. But it was a Gnostic ideology. And one reason the liberal theologians used to say the Gospel of John was not written, and the epistles of John were not written in the first century, they were written later, because they said Gnosticism wasn't fully developed yet. And you can really tell that John in his Gospel and also in his epistles was dealing with Gnosticism. So it says there's no way that it was written in the first century because of that. Of course, you know, anybody who has a, an ounce of smarts in them, you know, would believe God's Word even though there was not 
evidence of man finding that yet. Well, lo and behold comes the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written long before Jesus. And guess what kind of writings were in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Gnostic writings. <laughs> and so they had to eat those words. And we've actually found a manuscript of the Gospel of Mark that dates back to the first century. So even liberal theologians today like Bart Ehrman, who is no believer in Jesus, he's a, quote, a Christian theologian, but he's no believer in Jesus, he even admits that these writings go back to the first century. Now, he says they all been, they've been changed to a large part or whatever, but he even admits that. But uh, this early form of Gnosticism, it was a multifaceted uh, heresy because it, there was a lot of different elements that affected it as far as heretical teachings within the church. But this Gnostic ideology, one of the main things was it denied the deity of, of Christ. Now what it would say is Gnosticism is that you had to have this special knowledge. The rest of you common people didn't have this knowledge, but they had special knowledge. And part of this was that matter was evil. Anything material, anything that you could touch or see is evil. Matter is evil. The spirit is what is good. And so they took this two ways. They would say, in the Christian realm, of taking the knowledge of the Christian realm, they would say, my body is evil, I must cut it, I must punish it. A lot of monastic groups did that. They punished their body. They tortured their body because their body was evil. And then you had others that said, well, you know what? The body's evil. Let the body do whatever it's going to do. It's your spirit that counts. And again, we see some of that today. Do whatever you do. It's your heart is right. It's your heart that counts, that kind of a thing. It doesn't matter if you commit adultery or do whatever. Uh, that's your body. That doesn't matter. It's your heart that counts. It was kind of that idea. And so because of that, now all matter is evil. Therefore, if Jesus is God, he can't be what? He can't be matter. He can't be flesh and bone. And so that's how it kind of worked out in this. And so Paul is, is combating that damning element of heresy, which, uh, emphatic, which is an emphatic defense of Christ's uh, humanity and divinity all in one. Now, we have some cults today that don't believe in the divinity of Jesus the way the Bible teaches it. Who knows one? Who can name a cult? Uh, there's the main two right there, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. But they uh, teach that uh, Jesus was not the eternal great I am, Yahweh. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when you talk about this ideology that was creeping in, see, they had this ideology that all matters evil. And so they said, if that's the case, they were letting this ideology override theology. And so they were letting an ideology inter uh, interpret their theology. And we've got to be careful of that today, of letting some type of way of thinking make its way into how we interpret Scripture and ideology. Today, there's a socialist communist ideology that's creeping in Christianity today. And it's dangerous. It's called wokeism. But they're all woke about, they, they put people in groups and they think that we can, that the Bible teaches that uh, Jesus is more concerned about the social level of different groups than he was the salvation uh, of people from individuals from their sins. So they, they think that we all just put our money in a pot, take from the rich, everybody else, and just put it in a pot and we all live out of it. 
That's not taught in the Bible. But they take that sociology, that communism ideology, a way of thinking, and they'll find some verses in Scripture that seem to what? That promote that. When they look at the early church, that they, they begin to sell land and give it to the apostles so that they could all take care of one another. That was not a commune. <laughs> of which we get the, the idea of communism. We're all living together. Did y'all know that our first forefathers, some of the pilgrims, practiced this? And they almost died because of it. It doesn't work, people. It's not according to human nature and what the Bible teaches about human nature. Because if we start taking from some and give to the others, what are the ones who are working going to start doing? Stop doing. <laughs> That's what they're going to stop doing. I tell them when I, I feel in, in history classes, I said, uh, talk about socialism. How many of you for that? Some raised their hand. I said, well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we did this in class. We take... Um, how many of you do well in school? Raise your hand. They would raise your hand. You make good grades, then they would raise your hand. Here's what we're going to do. From those of you who make A's, uh, you don't need that to pass. You can still pass with a C. So what we're going to do, we're going to take some of away your grade point average and give it to the ones who are failing to bring them up where we're all passing now at the C level. How's that sound? Well, they don't like it. I said, well, why not? Well, it's not fair. We're working. We're studying for it. Oh, okay. So now you don't believe in socialism? And I said, now what will eventually happen? And they, I don't have to explain it to them. They all say, well, eventually everybody's going to be failing. I said, why? Because the ones who are studying working hard to keep everybody to see, they're going to stop. And eventually there's not going to be enough grade point average to make everybody pass and everybody will be failing. I said, right. So it doesn't work with human nature. They have this, oh, it should all come together like Coke and a smile. I'd like to teach the world to sing, right? In perfect harmony. That's communism, socialism. It's the theme of it, the element of it. Now, I want everybody to get along. But when you start giving people, uh, taking people from work and give it to people who won't work, it's not going to work. And so you got these ideas. They see some elements of that, and they'll try to interpret the Bible that way. Don't do it. Beware of an ideology. Your ideology better be all theology first. And then the liberation theology in Christianity today. That's where we get all this intersectionality today. Because liberation theology began in Latin American, and it was like uh, the rich uh, are the enemy and the poor are Jesus' people. And the, well, the poor has got to stand up and fight the, the rich and take from them. And you've got liberation. The rich man is keeping you down, that kind of a thing. And now you have it today with groups who are trying to seg seg segment us as Americans. You've got this group and this group. And if, uh, if uh, you're a white male, you're the lowest on the totem pole. You're a despicable human being. But if you're of this uh, uh, color and this sexual orientation or this sexual life. Everything that you have that is, is kind of different, it gives more points for you and you're a higher in the, the rung on the totem pole and, and they just want to pit people against one another and uh, liberate from, and then they blame Christianity on white men. My friend, I got news for you. Christianity came to, Af went to Africa before it ever went to Europe. <laughs> Did you know that? Yeah, it's not a white man's religion. Now, white, there have been some evil white men who have tried to take Christianity or even religion and interpret it to suit themselves. But uh, Christianity is what the Bible uh, declares it to be. And 
that's what we need to understand and let guide our thoughts and our worldview. So we still have problems today of these different ideologies creeping in the church and missing, and, and now you're t- having heresies being taught in, in church today. And uh, so we've got to be aware of that. So Paul was combating this heresy, and the first thing I want you to see is that we're going to look at four things that Jesus is the greatest in. Number one, Jesus as God is the greatest icon. And we see that in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now in our culture, there are many people and things that are iconic, right? Now an icon is an image or a person or a thing that is revered or idolized. Now, there are a lot of people and things that are iconic in, in our culture. For example, the Beatles are iconic. Uh, James Brown is iconic. You don't have to see his picture. You could just see a silhouetted image with his, remember his hair? And it says uh, he's iconic. You know, the I feel good. There's so much. Uh, Elvis Presley, iconic. Uh, what about the Coke bottle? That's iconic. What are some more iconic people or things? Think of some real quick. What well, apple that with, with the bite off of it? Now we know what that stands for in the Bible. It's iconic, you know, figure, but we don't know if it was an apple that was the fruit. But but uh, I will put that there for a reason, by the way, people. If you don't know that, they're not, they're not your friend. Although I do have an Apple iPhone, so I do have some of the problems. But they're not your friend. <laughs> My name is Jay. I'm your friend, but they're not your friend. So we have all kinds of different iconic people, iconic things. Uh, uh, JFK, just the initial, iconic. Uh, So we can go on and on and on about all all of these things. But there's nothing worldwide that is more iconic than one thing, one symbol. There you go, Linda, the cross. Nothing comes close to being... Uh, as iconic as the cross. Why is that? Say his, it's, amen. Say his name. Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Now, who could take something so hideous as a cross? I want I to get you, get you to kind of understand what I'm talking about here. How many of you have seen a guillotine before? Raise your hand. All right? <laughs> as a horrible looking thing, isn't it? What if you went into a place, somebody invited you to some type of gathering, and you went into a place, and there on the stage was a guillotine? All right, are you with me? And they talked about the blood that was stained on the guillotine. You know, there's a big blade that comes down and chops people's heads off. And they were singing songs about the guillotine. And they're talking, oh, how beautiful is this guillotine? What would you think about those people? (laughs) You you'd make like a banana and split, right? (laughs) You'd get out as fast as you could. These people are insane. They're crazy. That was the cross, my friend. Back in the first century church, Paul said, "I will boast what, and nothing but what, the cross of Christ Jesus." 
Now, who could take something like that and transform it and touch a beautiful icon? What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. Why? Because he's the greatest icon. Uh, the Greek word for image is E-I-K-O-N, literated in the English, icon, from which we get our English word I-C-O-N, icon. It means copy or likeness. Christ Jesus is the perfect likeness, the perfect image, the exact likeness of God, and He is God. Not just likeness, He is God. Philippians 2.6, Paul put it this way, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus being... Equal with God was not robbing anything from God. But you try to put yourself equal with God, you're robbing. Oh boy. You don't want to be there. But it was not considered robbery for Jesus to be equal with God because he was God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 speaks of Jesus. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. In the gospel of John, Chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, which means kind of being different. But, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Then it goes on to say in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Amen. So, uh, and then, <laughs> uh, Philip one day said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. That would really be the hook, line, and sinker for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father, that's what I'm doing. I am the Father. I'm showing you the Father in flesh. Can you imagine Jesus as a 12-year-old? Remember in the temple when his mom and dad left him behind and uh, had gone back home and they realized, oh, where's Jesus <laughs> They had to go back and, and find him. He was in the temple as a 12-year-old, and he was astounding the religious scholars of the day. And could you imagine them asking him the question, Well, how old are you, young man? Jesus answering, Well, on my mother's side, I'm 12. <laughs> but on my dad's side, I'm older than my mother and just as old as he is. <laughs> you know, on his mother's side, he had to learn to speak. On his father's side, he spoke all creation into existence. On his mother's side, he grew hungry and thirsty. On his father's side, he was the bread of life and the fountain of living water. On his mother's side, he died in agony on a Roman cross. On his father's side, he conquered sin, death, and hell through raising himself from the dead. 
Now, why do people have a hard time seeing who Jesus is, the greatest icon, the God-man, God in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Again, if you're coming with us and joining us on Sunday mornings, which you need to be going through the catechisms, we're learning about the Trinity and how to better explain and understand the Trinity. And today we're looking about, you know, the last two Sundays we've been looking at the uh, why, did, why and how did God create us and uh, what else did God create. And all. We're learning about this stuff. It's very, very important. And why, have, why do our heart, people have a hard time understanding Jesus is the second person of the Trinity? That He is God. He's not a God. He is the God. Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says this, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. They're blinded by, by Satan. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, I'm not saying that any of us fully comprehend the Trinity. It's not comprehensible in its full extent. But it is in the extent that we need to know it. And if you have a grasp on the Trinity, do not break your arm patting yourself on the back, my friend. Why? Because you didn't figure that out. You didn't study hard enough and come to that understanding on your own. How do I know that? Because of what it says on in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. For it is God who had commanded the light to shine in the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The only reason you know it is because God who one day said, let there be light in creation, was the same God who spoke into your life and said, let there be light for him, for her to see that. So don't pat yourself on the back because you know anything. It should make you humble, gratefully humble that you understand and realize that. Don't get haughty or proud because but by the grace of God you wouldn't understand it or see it yourself. So number one, Jesus, is the, Jesus as God is the greatest icon. Number two, Jesus as God is the greatest rank. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, Paul is using this to combat any notion that Jesus is not fully God and fully man. Uh, God in the face. He's not part God and part man or some God and some man or mostly man or some God or mostly God and some man, that he is both fully God and fully man at the same time. And he's writing this to combat that. And yet, cults love this verse. They want to use it to prove that Jesus is what? A created being, because it says what? Look at that. It says right there. Firstborn, he was born. There was a time when he was born. Yes, there was a time when he was born physically. But even that word there is not used in that context. Uh, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, they say Jesus is not the God, but Jesus is a God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, in their scripture, New World Translation, you would read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And they put that in there because they don't believe Jesus is the God. And so they say Jesus is a God. 
But God says there's what? How many gods are, according to God, how many gods? <laughs> Just one. So they're in a fix, whichever way they, they go with that. But they believe he is a God, a lesser God created. Mormons do not believe in Jesus as the Bible proclaims him, as uh, the second person of the Trinity. Mormons believe, they, they say Jesus is God because he's the son of God. But do you know who Mormons believe Jesus is a brother to? Satan. He and Satan are brothers. We can go on. I mean, do you have these? They, they actually believe, Mormons actually believe that one day, if you're a good enough Mormon God, guess what you get to be? You get to be God of your own planet, like our God once was a man like you. As God, as uh, God once has something as God is, man once was, or whatever, and you could be. But that's what they believe. They can believe that if they're good enough and they have a good enough wife and children and everything, that one day they'll be God like our God is, who was one day a man too. And that's it ties in with Gnosticism. Not time to go into all that, but that you have, you have the lesser gods that, that the eons of that. But the Greek word for firstborn, prototokos, uh, and the Hebrew word, bekor, can refer to one who was actually chronologically born first in the family. But it also often refers to just being preeminent. Uh, being uh, preeminent in position, being preeminent in race, to be the top one. And we see this throughout Scripture when it's not just referred to being the one who's firstborn, but the one who had the rights to be in the preeminent one. Most of the time in a family, the firstborn was the preeminent one. But not always the case. I remember the story in, in Genesis chapter 48. <clears throat> Jacob is an old man. He's about to die. He thought his son Joseph, his favorite, was, had died. And then he found him. He's still alive. Not only is he alive, he's large and in charge of Egypt. And he, he's back now in, in Egypt with his son. He's about <clears throat> to go the way that we all must go. And so... Joseph brings his two sons in to get the blessing from who? From his father. And when Joseph does that, Jacob takes his right hand and crosses over and puts it on Ephraim, the younger son. Right hand means what? That's the greater blessing. The right hand of God, the right hand, because most people are right-handed. I'm sorry if you're left-handed, God still loves you, okay? I'm not knocking that. <laughs> But he puts the right hand on Ephraim, the younger, and he crosses over and puts his left hand on Manasseh, the older. And Joseph gets upset. No, no, Father, this is wrong. He said, no, it's not wrong. This is the way God, the younger will be the greater. And so he got the firstborn blessing. The younger did. So it's not always a chronological thing or meaning about actually being born. It just means to be preeminent to be the, the top position in rank. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it says of, of this about Jesus. But when He again brings the firstborn into the world. And if it didn't mean firstborn, Jesus was physically born in human flesh, not eternally born in spirit, but there was a time when He was born in flesh. And that's what we're about to celebrate, right? Christmas. So if he's saying the firstborn, then it's talking about being first. He wasn't. There were other, a lot of people born before Jesus, physically speaking. But when 
he again brings the firstborn into the world, means the, the uh, preeminent one, the highest of rank. He says, let all the angels worship him. Now what does God say about worshiping? You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you what? Worship and serve. You tried to worship. What do angels say when men in the Bible uh, are, are, are in awe of them and they start to worship the angels? What do the angels say? Well, well, don't you dare do that. You worship God. But God the Father says of God the Son, the firstborn, His firstborn, which again is not about position. It's, about, I mean, it's not about... Uh, order of birth, it's about preeminence. Let the angels of God worship Him. God, God's a jealous God. He will not share His worship with who? Anyone else. But to the Son, in verse 8 He goes on to say, but to the Son He says, your throne, O God. That's what God the Father says about God the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter, I mean the scepter. The scepter of, uh, of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Also in Romans chapter 8, I'm just giving you examples, verse 29. It said, For whom he foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what God did is that God, in, according to his own Desire and will not because he oh look down in the future. Oh look me down in the future. I see Judy. You know, she's a pretty good gal. I think I'm gonna make her one of mine. No, I think no, I think she I see Judy as a little girl on her knees accepting me, so I'm gonna choose her. No, that's not what happened. God foreknew, he knew you before you were even born as his own. God chose you in his own sovereign grace and will, and God made you his own. And so for those he foreknew, he also that's another word that people don't understand biblically. They read, they try to make it out that God just, oh, I look down the future. I see this person, he's figured it out. Tom figured it out about me. So I'm going to make Tom one of my own. I'm choosing it. No. He already knew you as his own, that you were going to be his own by his own choice. And he uh, predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Because every child of God, male or female, it's God's will for them to be like who? Christ, that Christ might be the firstborn, the preeminent one in position and rank among many brethren. So Jesus as God is the greatest in rank. Number three, Jesus as God is the greatest creator. In, in verses 16 through 17, look there with me. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Now when you think about everything on earth, that's a lot. When you think about everything in heaven, what do you think about? Wow, God. There's no end to it. Visible and, and invisible. You know, atheists don't believe in anything invisible. But there's a lot of that. There's even more of that than what's visible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or things created, uh, that He uh, is the... Uh, the, the power of creation. Jesus is the Jesus as God is the greatest creator, the greatest creator. Uh, when you think of creators today, famous creators, who you think of? Thomas Edison? What did he create? 
little electricity, the light bulb. Read about Thomas Edison. He was a, he was a thief. He stole more of that idea from uh, the Tesla. I mean, yeah, he's, there's a, he's, he's a bad dude. You got to learn. Read about the first guy who was electric, electrocuted in the electric chair. Thomas Edison wanted that because he wanted to scare everybody away from that electricity. He wanted everybody to use his kind of electricity through battery operated. A horrible story. I mean, it's a really, just to get you interested, the guy who was executed on the electric chair first, the first execution, Thomas Edison set it up because he wanted people to be terrified. If you have electricity in this house, this is what happened to you. Uh, the guy had just brutally murdered his wife, just plunged her. Uh, he goes to prison. He's on death row. He becomes a Christian. It gets to the point where everybody loves this guy. The warden who's having to execute him doesn't want to. And he's calming the warden down. He said, this is what needs to happen. I'm praying for He was praying for the warden. that had, And the warden's all falling apart because he didn't want to execute this guy. It's an awesome story. Check it out. Read it. It's very interesting. And uh, how what a horrible execution that, that was and the way it turned out there. But that's Edison for you. But we have these famous creators like um, Bill Gates who famously stole creations and, and other ones I, we kind of mentioned earlier th this morning. But you think about creative and, and uh, uh, powerful uh, people. Uh, uh, People that are in position, you think of, you know, like going back with the, with the icon uh, thing. Uh, what is the term, the leader of the free world, what does that refer to? Sounds, in, sounds impressive, right? The leader of the free world. Sounds impressive, right? Are you impressed with that? That's impressive. But the guy who's about to be the leader of the free world trying to reference our founding, uh, one of our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, said that all men are created... Uh, we, we, well, you know the thing. Not too impressive. <laughs> but that's the leader of the free world. So people, we think about impressive people, aren't really all that impressive compared to God. Jesus says God is the greatest creator. Uh, he is the power of all creation, as we saw as we just read, he created all by the power of his what? His word. He just said, you know, I have, used to have a t-shirt. I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God spoke and bang, it happened. <laughs> and he did all things. And think about all things. It's just massive. It's just mind-boggling. But he is the power of creation. He is the, be the purpose of all creation. It said it was created what? For Him. And, and we learn in our catechism, we are created by God, male and female, in His own image for His glory. For His glory. It's all about His glory. So, He is the power of creation. He's the purpose of creation. You exist for Him, not yourself. Not yourself. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. Whether, you're, whether you realize it or, or not. Everybody belongs to God and everybody's going to stand before God one day. And God's going to do with you uh, based on what you've done with Him. What you've done with Him. Based on what you've done with the gospel, God's going to deal with you based on that. For those who have uh, repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ Jesus and what He did for them on the cross and is a born-again child of God, 
He'll say, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. To those who haven't, he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Even those who sat in church Sunday after Sunday and said, Lord, Lord. Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and God can do that but with, with individuals. Why? Because they all belong to him and he can do what is right and just. And he will do what is right and just. Because everybody belongs to him. He is the power of all creation. He is the purpose for all creation. He is the preserver of all creation. In verse 17, it says, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the preserver of all cre uh, creation. Consist means hold together. I like to look at it this way. Listen, Jesus is the glue of the galaxy. <laughs> he is the glue. He holds everything together. Now, if you want your socks to be... Uh, blessed right off your feet. Look at that video of uh, Louis, uh, Louis Giglio. He gives this talk on laminin. L-A-M-I-N-I-N. L-A-M-I-N-I-N. He does this talk on laminin. He does also another talk about how vast creation is and the galaxies are and all that stuff. And talk about how it just helps you to see the wonder and the greatness of God. You need to see that one too. But this one on laminin. Laminin is a it is what scientists have found out is to be the protein that holds everything together. Without this element in, uh, uh, in, in the protein to hold everything together, everything would fall apart. When you look under a microscope, you know what the shape of laminin is? The icon. It's the cross. Honestly, you 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 you're going to be. Go into the, almost the third heaven <laughs> when you watch. This is fantastic. You need to do that. So when you get some time, do that. But he is the preserver of all creation. In him it all holds together. And then lastly, Jesus is the God. Jesus as God is the greatest leader. The greatest leader. And it goes on here and he's capping it off. And he, he caps it off not with creation. He caps it off with what? The church. And he said, and, and, and to top it off, and to come to kind of kind of a conclusion about this thought right here, you know, the cherry on top of it all, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus as God is the greatest leader. Again, we have the leaders of, I mentioned that the leader of the free world, right? Sounds impressive, but not so much. Matter of fact, the one that we've had for the four years, I think he's done a pretty good job. Of, he's done a lot better. His actions have been a lot better than his words. <laughs> Even though he boasts about having the greatest words. <laughs> uh, but this next one's coming in is even is a lot less impressive. But Jesus is the greatest leader. Jesus is the greatest leader of the greatest kingdom. There have been a lot of kingdoms that have come and gone. You know, the Beatles were the king of, kind of, well, disputed. You might dispute it, Linda, of rock and roll or whatever, because Elvis was the king, right? Some would say the Beatles, some would say Elvis, some would say um, uh, Little Richard or, or whatever, and there were all people that argued and fought over who, who's, the, you know, the king or, or whatever. And Jesus is the greatest leader of the greatest kingdom.
Kingdoms have come and gone. There have been some great kingdoms. We talk about the fall of Rome. And we study about the fall of Rome and how they fell. And when you read about how they fell and you read about what we're doing, we're following in their footsteps. We're doing all the wrong things. And so kingdoms come and go. People think, well, America will never fall. My friend, it's going to fall one day. I don't want it to fall. I'm voting and working so it doesn't fall. <laughs> I, want to, I want to make it, you know, as great as it can be. And the more we honor God and do things like that, the greater it will be. So, I want that. I'm, I'm not, but it's going to fall. All kingdoms are going to fall. And all kingdoms to this point throughout history have fallen. The reason this kingdom has lasted, it's not a kingdom, but you know what I meant, this nation. The reason this lasted so long, because when they designed the Constitution, they designed it built on a knowledge of human nature, a biblical knowledge of human nature. That's what they said in the three uh, uh, parts of government. and We don't have time to go into all that. But they understood human nature, and they designed government in that way, and, that, of course, a belief and fear of God. But all nations will, will fall. But yet there's been one kingdom that has never fallen. Although it's been what? Targeted. <laughs> Read church history. Read how the church has been targeted. Uh, how they wanted to wipe it out. In the Old Testament, they wanted to wipe Israel out. Uh, just read. And, and you will see that it's been heavily attacked. But what's the old saying we've learned? The blood of the martyrs is the what? Fuel of the church. The more they try to kill us and wipe us out, the more we grow. Matter of fact, when we're in ease, that's when we don't do well. So we might be heading for unease. So get, get comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. As somebody told me. But he's the leader of the greatest kingdom. Jesus said, I will... He's going to build something, Wes. What is he going to build? My church. He said, I will build... I said that Wes because Wes is a builder. He said, I will build my church. And what's not going to happen? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I'm going to build it. And guess what? He has. And John Lennon and all the ones who've come before who said the church is going to fail, it's going to end, take my word on it, they were all what? Wrong. Thomas Paine, who wrote The Age of Reason, one time supposedly believed in God, then wrote The Age of Reason. It's everything's disputable. But he and other skeptics like him said they were going to, one day a Bible is only going to remain in a museum for curiosity seekers about history. That's what they They're all wrong. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest leader of the greatest kingdom. They're all wrong. And the gates of hell will not prevail against. And I have been literally to the gates of hell. You don't believe me. I have literally been to the gates of hell. I have. It's a place. It's a place north of Israel. It's where Jesus went, what we talked about, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took... Uh, his disciples outside of the boundaries of Israel to uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi. 
There were two Caesareas. This was Caesarea Philippi. He had taken them there. And that's where he went on the Mount of Transfiguration, came down. Remember the story? Uh, the other disciples who remained, there was a demon-possessed boy. They had, the father had brought them to Jesus, but Jesus was up on the mountain. They couldn't cast him out. Jesus cast him out, and he said, Oh, you have little faith. How, much, how long must I bear with you? And that's, It was at that same time <clears throat> that Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Well, some say you're this or that or whatever. And he said, But who do you say that I am? To his disciples. Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which art in heaven. And, and then Jesus goes on to say, and I, I will build my church in the gates of hell. The gates of hell was a location in Caesarea Philippi. It was like, they thought it was like a bottomless pit. They thought that was where hell was, where you go down, has no ending to it. And that was a literally known as, do you, you didn't know that, that when Jesus talked about the gates of hell, he was talking about a literal place. Now, he could be using it figuratively too, like we talk about literal place, but it was a literal place. I have literally stood by the gates of hell. And what was he saying when he meant gates of hell? Was he talking about Satan and hell? That could be involved in it. But what he was saying is, you know, you think you've got to stay here in God's chosen land with God's chosen people. No, the gospel is even for these people. And even their horrible beliefs about gates of hell and their, all their ideology and their, their false idol worship, that's not going to stop my kingdom from growing. It doesn't matter what they believe for hundreds of years or thousands of years. The gospel is powerful and I'm going to build my church. That's what he was saying. Nothing's going to stop it. Jesus is the greatest leader of the greatest kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, we're receiving it now. We're part of it now. It's only going to get what? It's going to get stronger and better. We're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It said, you know, this is where uh, the Hebrew writers saying God's going to shake not only the earth one more time like he did in the past, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Well-pleasing means to God. With reverence and godly fear. May God give us the grace to do that. And even in difficult times. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded, the day's coming people, and uh, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ, of His Christ, and He shall reign, say it, forever and ever. That's coming people. That's the kingdom we're part of. Jesus as God is the greatest leader, of the greatest kingdom. Sum it up. The greatest icon, the greatest in rank, the greatest creator, the greatest leader. As it says here, that in all things, he might have, what's that word? Preeminence. I've got a question for you. I want you to be truthful. I'm not asking you, is Jesus prominent in your life? I would guess that the vast majority of here today, we say Jesus is prominent. Jesus would be prominent in their life. That means what he has to say has what? Weight and importance. You know, he, he's, he's, he's right up there. That's a wicked sin. Understand? 
For Jesus to be prominent in your life is a wicked sin. His place is not prominence. His place is what? Preeminence. Is that true for you? Is Jesus really preeminent in your life? If it is, you know what? It, it, it affect your life in every facet, in every way. I know people say, well, you know, Jesus, he's my number one. But they never darken the steps of a, of a church worship service. Or, you know, I don't like the church. I the church full of hypocrites or whatever. The church is the body of Christ. Christ there. Don't tell me you love the head but hate the body. Don't tell me that's nonsense. It's impossible. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for the church. If you love Christ, you will love the church. Christ loves the church with all of its what? False fit and hypocrites in it. He loves the church. That's why he's working, continuing to work in the church. He who began a good work will continue to perform it to the day of his coming. It'll affect that. It'll affect me. You just, a lot of people say, cheat like worshiping as, well, if I can really fit it in this week. That's Jesus being prominent, which we, is, we know is what? It's a wicked sin. Jesus pre and preeminent, that's a major, major difference. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Does he have it in your life? Is he worthy of it? We're going to close and sing one of my favorite songs. Where are our, our music people? Is he worthy of preeminence? Is this one that we just looked at in the Word of God worthy of preeminence in your heart and life?